let's ask for God's blessing upon the ministry of his word this morning. God, we confess with our lips that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We also confess sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to follow because our hearts are inclined to go their own way, and sometimes it's just hard to, to trust you. Not that, you're, not that you're not trustworthy, but our hearts can be fickle. And so as we come to uh, passages of Scripture that today are probably going to confront our lives and our hearts, and they're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of who we are and how we live, we pray that you would give us grace to hear, and that in hearing we would do all that is written. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a little bit disappointed in the attendance today because I knew that everybody knew I was going to be preaching on giving, and I thought we would be standing room only to hear a sermon on stewardship. I can be oblivious sometimes, but I'm not that oblivious. Uh, speaking on stewardship, speaking on giving can be really awkward. Uh, people tend to assume the worst about what our motives are for doing that, and, and that's not without reason. You hear often about preachers who, and church leaders who embezzle money, or you, you see on TV celebrity pastors who are constantly asking for money while living in multi-million dollar mansions. And, and so there's a mutual discomfort that comes when it, when it comes to preaching on money and stewardship. You, you and I both feel it, and it can be so uncomfortable that, that it, uh, churches sometimes don't address the issue at all. But not talking about money in the church because it's awkward would be a little bit like a doctor not warning a patient that he is morbidly obese because he doesn't want to feel uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's one that needs to happen. To ignore money from a Christian perspective would require that we ignore at least 2,400 verses in the Bible that deal with money and possessions. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than heaven, hell, and sexuality combined. This is an important topic, extremely important topic for Christians to think about, even if it's an awkward topic to deal with. Now, I want to be clear on one thing from the very beginning. Money is an amoral thing. Money is neither inherently good or inherently bad. It's not a sin to have a lot of money. It's not a sin to be poor. But what we do with our money is a deeply spiritual matter. How we use our money is deeply spiritual. It's a moral matter. It's a matter of stewardship. And we started this conversation last week that the idea of a steward is that everything we have and everything we are is entrusted to us by God to use for God. Everything we have is entrusted to us by God to use for God. Now, that's much broader than just money. Stewardship touches on all of life. How do we use our time, our words? Do we invite people into our homes and show hospitality? How do we handle our conflicts? Conflicts are a stewardship. See, all of life is a stewardship entrusted to us by a sovereign God to use for his glory. God is the one who, as we read in Deuteronomy, gives us the ability to earn wealth and to enjoy it. If we are to be good stewards, 
our hearts must belong to the Lord first. But we also know that money is always tugging at our heartstrings, isn't it? And, and so one thing I want to be very clear from the start, our motivation for talking about this today is not simply that the church wants your money. It's that the church wants your holiness. And you cannot be a holy Christian while idolizing money. Today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 for some very helpful principles on giving. And before I read this passage, I want to give you some background. Back in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he mentioned taking up a special collection for the poor in Jerusalem. And it seems that there was some initial excitement from the Corinthians to be able to help their brothers and sisters who were suffering. But over the span of a year or so, the excitement has waned. And while other churches were giving sacrificially and generously, the Corinthians have suddenly come down with a case of financial amnesia. And they're not following through on their promise. Let's see how Paul addresses them. 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you were asked to give a presentation or a sermon to a church on giving, where would you start? I suppose many of us might start in all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 14, as Abraham met Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this sort of mysterious Christ figure, Christ-like figure of the Old Testament, and Abraham gave him a tithe, a tenth. You could look at Malachi chapter 3, how God says to the Israelites, you have robbed me, and the people say, how have we robbed you? And Malachi says, or the Lord says through Malachi, by withholding my tithe. 
You might go to the chapter after this, 2 Corinthians 9, where the Apostle Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. These are all great places to start, but I think it's fascinating. When the Apostle Paul wants to talk to the Corinthians and put a little bit of pressure on them about giving because they've not followed through with their commitments, he starts somewhere very, very different. He starts by reminding them of the pattern of Christ's generosity. You know, we may not often think of our God as generous. That's just probably not one of the common terms we use, but generosity is really a synonym for grace. It's, it's undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness and favor. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the Lord Jesus has given so graciously and so generously of himself towards them. And for those of us who know this generous God, we ought to be becoming generous people as well. See, as we become more like Christ, his pattern of generosity will become our pattern as well. We saw a little bit of this last week. If you remember to Romans 12, we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to read verse 2, where the Apostle Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, this is true when it comes to giving. All of us have an idea about giving that is patterned after what we see in this world. We have ideas about wealth and material possessions that are naturally shaped by this world. You know, that's probably why the Macedonians' generosity is so hard for us to wrap our minds around. I mean, is that not incredible? Paul says, you know, they were going through great afflictions, and they just kept giving more and more and more. Paul even seems to be saying, I, I was kind of uncomfortable with it. I didn't ask for it, but it was such a privilege for them to give. And we look at people like that, and you know, I, I can probably count on one hand the amount of people that I've known in my life that were like that. That's because naturally we are shaped by this world in how we think about giving and possessions and money. You know, this is something you and I need to be aware of. I don't know if you realize this. You may look around you and you, you may know people who have much, much greater wealth than you. But when we think about the church today across the world and we think about the church today throughout the history of the church, we are probably in the top 1% wealthiest Christians to ever live. I don't say that as a boast at all. I'm saying that brings tremendous responsibility to us. You, you even think about Christians today. You know, numerically, most Christians are living in poorer countries. Most Christians are not financially thriving the way that we are. We've been blessed by God, and we don't sense any guilt over that, but we understand that with the stewardship of wealth comes responsibility. Such affluence can make it difficult for us because most of us cannot imagine giving up our luxuries, can we? For most of us, we are committed to giving as long as it doesn't infringe on the American dream. As long as it doesn't take me out of this category of what I see with my neighbors, what I see in my coworkers, my family, and so on, I'm committed as long as it doesn't make my life harder. That is a very foreign thought to the scriptures. These Macedonian believers, they understood what it was to give generously and sacrificially, so much so that it radically changed their lives as they gave, not out of an abundance, but they gave out of their poverty. 
want to ask you to do me a favor before we get into the sermon, and that is I want to challenge you and ask you to let your guard down. I mentioned last week, sometimes preachers can look out into the congregation, and it's as if people sometimes have a do not disturb sign hanging around their necks. And for a lot of us with money, we don't want to be disturbed. We don't want to be disturbed from the patterns of how we spend our money. We don't want to be disturbed in the patterns of how we give our money. And so I'm going to ask you not so much to listen to me, but to be renewed in your minds by the Word of God. See, the goal of the Christian life must be to become like Jesus Christ. And you cannot become like Jesus Christ without becoming generous like Jesus Christ. Today I'm going to preach on five biblical principles for giving. And the first is this, Christ is to be our pattern for giving. That's the first thing. Christ is to be our pattern for giving. And I want to explain that. We sang as our hymn of preparation for the ministry of God's word, this hymn, Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor. Well, obviously it's timely because it's, it's based on the words of, of uh, 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 9, which I'm preaching from. It's a beautiful hymn. It's timely now that Thanksgiving is over and it's finally legally time to sing Christmas hymns. Those of you nuts that, that sing Christmas hymns before Thanksgiving deserve to go to jail. But it's timely because of the backstory of that hymn. There was a, a family that were missionaries in China, John and Betty Stam. They were in the 1930s in a small town called Qingda in the middle of nowhere, South Anhui, China. They served with China Inland Mission. This was an organization that was founded by famous missionary pioneer Hudson Taylor. It, it, the area they were in, it's a beautiful area, but in that area of China, a communist rebellion had broken out. And, and some of the Chinese communists were going town to town committing heinous crimes. John and Betty lived in a small rented shop in, in the town. It doubled as a chapel where God's word was preached and the people gathered to worship and pray. Now, along with John and Betty lived their three-month-old baby, Helen. Word came to town that the bandits were headed to Jingda, and before the couple could get out of town, the rebels pushed down Stam's door. They stripped John and Betty of their clothing and led them out into the street, Helen asleep in Betty's arms. And John and Betty Stam were brutally murdered for their faith. But before they were killed, Betty was able to wrap Helen in winter clothes and hide her. And almost 24 hours later, a villager who had known the Stams came across Helen and was able to get her to safety. Frank Hooten was the author of this hymn, and he worked with China Inland Mission at the time. And when he got news of the Stams' death, he grieved for this dear couple who gave everything for Christ, and he penned this hymn as a result of it. This couple had given all so that their lives were patterned after the Lord Jesus. Jesus had not asked the Stams to walk a road that he himself didn't travel. And so as, as uh, Frank Hooten thought about the Stam family and their death, it brought into view a greater sense of all that the Lord Jesus had done for him. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Throne for a manger didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. What was on Hooten's mind there is the same thing that was on the Apostle Paul's mind as he wrote this passage to the Corinthian church. 
urging them to give of themselves fully, just as Jesus had done for them. He starts with the pattern of Jesus' life. What was Christ's pattern? He was rich. He was adored by all the saints and angels in heaven. And he did not keep that for himself, but for love's sake became poor. He laid it all down for the sake of the gospel. It's a very simple statement. And yet Paul is saying that, Corinthians, that, First Scots, is to be the pattern of the Christian's relationship with money and possessions. It is not our own, but we use it for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. So that's the first thing. We're, we're to look at the example or the pattern of Christ for us to understand how we're to give. The second principle generosity is evidence of hearts that have been transformed by the grace of Christ. Look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then Paul explains how faithfully they've given, but he's not saying, wow, look at those Macedonians. They're just a generous people. He says, Look at how the grace of God has worked in their life. It's really impressive what the Lord has done. They're poor, but they're giving like they're rich. Macedonia and Corinth are lessons in contrast here. Two centuries before Paul came to Macedonia, gold mines in the area provided a measure of wealth for the population. But by the first century, by the time of the church, the economy had deteriorated and the province was in the depths of poverty. War, barbarian invasion, Roman settlement, the restructuring of the province put most people, including the Christians, in dire financial straits. Now conversely, Corinth was flourishing. It had two, two harbors that, that had great ports in it and so Corinth was a wealthy city. These two stood at opposite ends of the spectrum and yet Paul says the Macedonians are out giving the Corinthians. Will you listen to me on this, please? Generosity is not an economic issue. It's a heart issue. Those who have been transformed by the grace of God will be generous people. There's a couple of reasons for that. Let me, let me go through some logical reasons that grace makes us gracious. God's generosity makes us generous one is simply that the grace of God transforms us into a new creation. You know, we're saved by grace alone, but God's grace doesn't just save us from sin's penalty. It saves us from sin's power, sin's dominion in our lives. It frees us from slavery to sin. And the Holy Spirit begins renewing us inwardly. Our Shorter Catechism explains this wonderfully. In sanctification, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. In other words, sanctification just starts by the Holy Spirit's work working itself out into every aspect of our lives, every part of our lives. And so to grow in sanctification means we're being set free more and more from the power of sin to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so it's logical that, that Christians would be generous because the bonds of slavery to sin have been broken in our lives. It's also logical because the grace of God is freeing. Again, I want to be very clear on this. Money itself is not a good thing or a bad thing. 
Sometimes people say that it is. They say money is the root of all evil. And they even quote scripture. Well, the problem is the Bible never says that, does it? They're, they're alluding to 1 Timothy 6.10. They're misquoting it, but 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, the danger of money is that we will love it too much and all sorts of evil flow out of it. All sorts of idolatry flows from it. John Calvin had a wonderful statement that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It never closes its doors. See, apart from God's transforming grace, our hearts will chase after idols all day long. We set our hopes upon them, we spend our time thinking about them, and we spend our money on them. Idols make us slaves. But true saving faith in Christ lifts our eyes and our hearts off of those idols and places them upon the Lord Jesus, and it frees our hearts from slavery to idolatry. This was the problem of the story of the rich young ruler. He was wealthy. He was moral by all external counts. He was respected. A guy like this could have been a real boost to Jesus' ministry if Jesus just played his cards right, right? What did Jesus say to him? Go, give all that you have to the poor and follow me. Poverty is not a requirement for the Christian life. What Jesus is doing is he's saying to the man, you've been serving the wrong God. This whole time, you've been in the synagogue, you've been respected, but you're an idolater. You're serving the wrong God. You're serving money. And until you're willing to part with your money, you can't really be a disciple. And, and you remember that, that line that the young man went away sad. Or the way we might say it today in our context is he went around with the do not disturb sign hanging from his neck. When we were about to move into this building three years ago, it was almost done in construction. And one of the last things that had to be done was uh, connect the water line and we could be in. Well, they couldn't find the water line. It took three months. It delayed our move by three months. But they brought in all sorts of technology to try to detect where the water line was. What if there was technology to detect idols in our hearts? Wouldn't it just be helpful if it would just beep when an idol is detected? Beep, beep, beep. Well, we do sort of have an idol detection system built in. And it's whatever gets your defenses up the most. Whatever you and I are most threatened to lose. If we think something is potentially going to take it away from us, that's probably an idol. Whatever you build a fence around and whatever you're most defensive of when it's threatened, that's our idol detection system. Most of us probably have allowed the idol of wealth to live rent-free in our hearts for a very long time. And we don't know it. But here's the danger. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24 through 26, you cannot worship God and stuff. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other, but you can't worship them both. And so Christians have to learn to use stuff, but love God, to care more about God than we do stuff. When we are committed to rooting out idols so that Christ alone will rule in our hearts, then our focus isn't on preserving our wealth, but using our wealth for the glory of Jesus. 
Do you see how freeing that is? To not be a slave to your wealth, but rather to use it for eternal things. To see wealth as a seed when it is distributed can grow up something eternal, something that will last forever. It's a whole lot more important than the newest iPhone that's going to be out of date in a year, isn't it? You know, this is what we're doing when we pass the collection plates in worship. It's not just an element of our worship. It's personal worship. As you have this moment to refocus week by week on the Lord, saying, Lord, I love you more than stuff. That's why I'm giving some of the stuff back. All the stuff comes from you. You own it. I'm just a steward. But I love you more than all the stuff, and so I give it back to you. That's the opportunity that happens every time that plate comes by you, is you have the opportunity to say, God, you are more important to me than stuff. If you don't do that, God will become a threat to you because he might just take away the things that you really love, the things that you're really serving, and you might go away sad like the rich young ruler did. But it is incredibly freeing to understand that when we use wealth for the glory of God, we are not slaves to it, but it becomes our servant for Christ's sake. Now third, this is still reasons it's logical that the grace of God would transform us, is that the grace of God is emboldening. If we're honest, one thing that keeps us from giving generously is fear. What if I give too much and can't pay my bills? What does John say? 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If I understand all that God has done for me in the gospel, how could I ever imagine that I could outgive God? How could I ever imagine that I could be more generous than God is? That was the case of the Macedonian believers. Look back at verse 2. Out of their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, isn't that amazing those two things go together? They have abundant joy and extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They were so moved by the grace of God and the gospel and confident in his provision for them that they gave boldly. This is the same as the case as the widow in Luke 21 who gave her two mites, her two cents. Let me, this does bring up a question. Is God calling you to give 100% of your finances? Do you need to log into your bank account right now, check your balance, and then write a check for that much? Probably not. God commends planning and hard work and making sure that you can feed your family. But the gospel should drive out fears which otherwise may keep you from giving substantially and sacrificially. It does bring up a, an important question. What percentage do we need to give? You know, you can talk with Christians on this topic and it won't be long before somebody raises the tithe question. In the Old Testament, Christians gave 10%. In the New Testament, that command isn't repeated. So do we have to tithe? It's kind of like the student who's listening to the teacher teach and then says, is this going to be on the test? In other words, they're looking sort of for an escape clause. Well, 
to be clear, when I'm talking about the tithe, I'm talking about it in its most basic form. When Abraham gave to Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a forerunner of Christ. In Genesis 14, he gave him 10%. I'm not talking about all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which total about 27%. I'm simply talking about the tithe, which we see from the very beginning. Well, regardless, the Apostle Paul scuttles that whole debate in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Look at it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In other words, everything that Paul tells the Corinthians about giving in this passage is based on their understanding that Jesus divested himself of glory and his prerogatives. He became poverty-stricken in order that, he, that we might become surpassingly rich. And the Apostle Paul says that ought to motivate the Christian giving, attitude towards giving so that the pattern of Jesus' self-giving now becomes the desire, uh, uh, it becomes what we desire to do. And so for those who may say the Bible doesn't require a tithe as the baseline for giving any longer, let me ask you this, if the tithe was the standard all the way back to the life of Abraham. And Abraham did not understand even a small fraction of all that you and I have in the fullness of the gospel. If Abraham had no problem giving 10% to Melchizedek, how much more should you and I gladly give because of what we understand to be true in the gospel? If you're simply trying to find a baseline of what you have to give, you've radically misunderstood how the Christian life affects generosity. It's not about our minimal duty, but it's about practicing maximum devotion to Christ, just as he practiced towards us. So the grace of God transforms us. Third, giving is intended to be a privilege for the Christian. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I am not going to pretend that every time I get an end-of-year appeal letter from some ministry, even a great ministry, that I am ecstatic to support that ministry. I'm not going to pretend that giving is easy. The Macedonians were apostolic in their desire to give. I mentioned I've met a few people like this who, who see money not as just a means for bigger houses or better vacations, but as an opportunity to worship God, to support the saints, and to spread the gospel throughout the nations. They see money not as something that will die with them one day, but as something that lives forever to support the spread of the gospel. I mentioned various ways you could start a sermon like this, and one of them was Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. I cringe a little bit when I hear that as an impetus for giving, not because it's a misuse of the text. I think it's exactly what Paul's talking about, but because sometimes it is abused by the hearers to where we say, okay, God wants me to give enough that I can still be, or not give too much to where I can't be happy. What's the problem? That verse is not saying that at all. God's not saying the limit is whatever you can give and still be cheerful about. 
he's saying you ought to endeavor to become someone who's able to give cheerfully. You and I ought to read about the Macedonians and not say, those people were crazy. We ought to say, I long to be like that. I've wrestled with that all week. I would love to be like the Macedonians, begging for opportunities to see the gospel go forth, begging for opportunities to comfort brothers and sisters who need relief. You know, to do that, to see it that way, that giving is a privilege in the Christian life, it doesn't start with our checkbook. It starts with our heart. As we look at the idols of our heart to figure out why we're not cheerful givers, and we do hard heart work, we do serious business with our hearts so that hopefully the next time you come in this room and the plates come by you, you can give cheerfully and sacrificially as God has instructed. Now, fourth principle of giving, Christians must give of ourselves first. We must give of ourselves first. This is what the Macedonians did. Look at verse 5. This, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, the reason the Macedonians could give so sacrificially to, of their money to the Lord was they had already given their hearts to him. You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus Christ is your treasure, your heart belongs to him. And money follows along pretty easily. It doesn't become begrudging to give. It becomes a joy to give to the Lord Jesus. This was the Macedonian situation. Everything they had, including their very hearts, belonged to him, so money was easy. Now, we need to realize, of course, the converse is true. When giving is hard, it's, it's, it's a sign that some part of our heart, that we're holding it back from God. Giving is only a joy and a privilege when we've given our, our whole selves to the Lord Jesus, and this is a major issue for Christians because you just think about this week, Right? We celebrated Thanksgiving on Thursday where we praise God for all that we have. And on Friday, we fought over 42-inch big screen TVs on Black Friday. Let me share this quote. It came from another leader in China Inland Mission, a man named Fred Mitchell. He said, nothing offers so practical a test of our love for Christ or for others as our attitude to money and possessions. The world, thinks, uh, the world asks how much we own. Christ asks how we use it. The world thinks more of getting. Christ thinks more of giving. The world asks what we give. Christ asks how we give. The world thinks of the amount. Christ thinks of the motive. Men ask how much we give. The Bible, how much we keep. To the unconverted, money is a means of gratification. To the converted, it's a means of of service to one an opportunity for comfort to the other an opportunity for consecration giving begins with giving ourselves to christ or it'll never really begin at all this needs to be true of us individually and it needs to be true of us as a church we've said from the very beginning we don't want to use gimmicks and motive uh, gimmicks and programs to try to cultivate giving because what happens is you turn into a just a fundraising organization which is more consumed with self-preservation than the glory of God. We give our hearts to Christ first. This leads to a fifth principle of giving, and that is your giving matters to God. Your giving matters to God. Have you ever been in a church 
in which you look at maybe the back of the pew in front of you and it says something like dedicated to the glory of God and in memory of such and such or you walk into a room and it has a plaque hanging over it saying something like that you know we had that discussion many many times early in the history of this church and it was a very very important uh, issue for many of us that we not go down that road there's a couple of reasons we wanted to stay away from that one is we know how prone the human heart can be towards pride don't we for most of us seeing our names written and canonized forever is not so much about the glory of God but about us being remembered that's why Jesus warned us not to announce our giving to others we're not to tell each other what we give in fact we're not even supposed to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing why because our hearts are so prone to evil we ought to be able to sing uh, to believe exactly what we're going to sing shortly riches I heed not nor man's empty praise thou mine inheritance now and always the other problem with naming people gifts after the giver is that earthly metrics don't measure spiritual gifts well there may be people in this room that can write a check easily for a hundred thousand dollars there are also going to be people who will struggle to write a check for a hundred dollars but both, if given sacrificially, may be equally pleasing to God. And so if you're walking through a church and you see a plaque that says, this room given to the glory of God and in memory of such and such, it's probably safe to assume they had gave a great money, a, amount of money to purchase that. But what about countless others who weren't able to give nearly as substantially, but what they gave was perhaps a greater percentage of what they had? Look at verse 12. If the readiness is there, in other words, if people are willing, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, if we exalt the $100,000 gift and ignore the $100 gift, we have not understood the heart of God. God values the heart of the giver, the willingness of the giver. And so Paul's saying here, those who have more are to give more. Those who have less, give less. The question isn't how much we have. It's a question of what we do with what God's entrusted to us. In God's economy, small gifts that are sacrificial matter just as much as big gifts that are sacrificial. They may not impress men or get you a plaque on the door, but that's never the aim of our giving in Scripture. The aim of giving is to please God, and sacrificial giving matters to Him. What joy it brings to God when people give of what they have to the work of the kingdom. Why? Because He needs it? No, He's got the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't He? Sacrificial giving is a sign that the gospel is at work in a people's hearts. Doug Kelly, my mentor, told me one of the first things that happened when the Spirit really poured out in a congregation that Dr. Kelly was serving and many people were converted, he said stingy people became generous. It was one of the most visible signs. It's marked that the gospel is at work. You remember in the very beginning, in the beginning of the scriptures, 
God created man to bear his image to the world, to show to the world the ways that God thinks and acts and loves. But with sin's entry into the world, we ruined that, and everything's out of whack, and the pattern of man ever since has been, as Luther would say, curved in on himself. We worry most about ourselves. But in Christ Jesus, we see the image of God made flesh, and it was his great joy at every turn to do his Father's will and lay down his life for his people, even to the point of death on the cross. And God now, by his sovereign mercy, is calling us to live like Christ in this world. He's given us his spirit, renewing us that we might be like Christ. And the more to be like Christ means that we will become increasingly generous like him. In Luke 7, we're told the story of a time Jesus was invited to dinner in the home of a Pharisee. There were other Pharisees at the house and Jesus is having supper with them. And a woman comes in who is known in the community as a great sinner. Notorious sinner. She takes perfume, very, very valuable, by far the most valuable thing she would have owned. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She begins to wash his feet with her tears, dries his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees, we're told, are, are thinking to themselves, if he really knew who this woman was, if he really was a prophet, he'd never allow her to do that because he'd know who she was. The irony is he knew exactly what kind of woman she was. She was a sinner who had placed her trust in him and he had saved her by his grace and she was so grateful that the only thing she could do was take her most valuable possessions and lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. This woman knew she, the grace that had been shown to her, and it was her great joy to show that grace back to Christ. The Lord Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your giving is an index of how much you realize your need of my grace. And the more my grace has impacted you, the more your generosity will reflect it. How do we apply this text? couple practical applications and one of them I, I didn't write it but I watched it happen and I'm going to point it out as the collection plates were going around I had the privilege of watching from here children who were excitedly putting their tithes their offerings maybe it was their parents I don't know it's not my business but I got to watch them put it in the plate parents teach your children to do that there are several folks in this congregation who have told me that their perspective on giving started long before they understood the gospel at all, but they watched their parents week after week put money in the collection plate. Parents, good work teaching your children the importance of that. Second, sometimes people ask if they should give their tithe to the church or can they give it to various ministries of their choosing? It's a really good question. I, I, I think that the consistent pattern in scripture is that the giving of tithes is to the church. The tithe, Malachi says, bringing the tithe into the storehouse. That was the treasury. 
We see it in the practice of the New Testament, bringing their contributions to the church. Now, gifts above the tithe can go to special projects or ministries, but the tithe goes to the church. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. In God's economy, the local church is the center of God's plan for worship, for discipleship, for world evangelization. The leadership is then charged to be good stewards of those funds, and so the congregation is to give generously to support the church in its worship and work to the best of their ability. Last application. just want to challenge you, and this is a, a task my family and I'll do as well. Do the math. This is the end of a year. It means you have opportunity to look at your giving statement and honestly assess, am I giving consistently, sacrificially, and cheerfully? Uh, have I done that, or are there idols that are perhaps grabbing hold of my heart? And then look forward to the year to come and say, how can I give with increasing faithfulness as an evidence of God's work in my heart? Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess these are hard words, and our flesh sometimes is going to bristle against them. We, we really don't, we don't always like when you confront us, when you rebuke us, even when you do so with incredible gentleness. Father, help us to reflect the gospel in our generosity, not just towards the church, but in our daily lives, in hospitality and caring for the poor and widows. God, would we pray that our lives would be a reflection of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom you are, by your Spirit, renewing us to be more like day after day. Father, we thank you for this brief study on stewardship. We pray that you would help us not only to be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.